Welcome to Lovers Forever. So last week, Frank and Ava finally got married. That was a shorter episode than I had really planned, because I had to have emergency surgery last week. So upon reflection, there are a few things I'd like to say here before we continue with the story. Both Frank and Ava learned of each other's infidelities in last week's episode. Ava came right out and told Frank that she had slept with the bullfighter, whereas Frank's infidelity was revealed by someone else, an anonymous sex worker who may or may not have been urged to disclose this secret by Howard Hughes. Neither Frank nor Ava apologized to each other that we know of. And to me, this is almost a bigger problem than the infidelity itself. Why couldn't they admit guilt or remorse for what they had done? They loved each other. They had to have been conflicted about cheating or else they wouldn't have tried to hide the truth. Ava said that Frank never ever forgave her for sleeping with the bullfighter. She probably never forgave him for paying someone else for sex. Neither of them could really do the work of making amends. If they admitted weakness or vulnerability, it would almost be like admitting defeat. This podcast is a few things. It's a story about two fascinating people. It's an examination of the 20th century version of Hollywood celebrity, but it's also a meditation on the nature of love and fidelity. What can I say? I was a philosophy minor. Is love inherently fatalistic? Is it something that just happens to you and then you have to organize your whole life around it regardless of the consequences, come what may? Or can you choose who you love? Is it a decision? Frank and Ava seem to have believed in the fatalistic option. Why else would they get married after knowing full well that neither one of them had been faithful? What self-respecting person would tolerate that unless they thought it was their destiny? On the one hand, you can look at it as something incredibly romantic. They had decided to try to make the relationship work, no matter what. Maybe in some weird way they were trying to believe the best about each other. On the other hand, you can view the marriage as fundamentally doomed. Old habits die hard, even if you've walked down the aisle. Can love survive without fidelity? And what does fidelity really mean? Does it mean you always go back to the person in the end, even if you stray for a while? Or does it mean absolute faithfulness? Frank and Ava both seem to expect absolute fidelity from each other without being willing or able to give the same commitment in return. Their love for each other was riven with contradiction, and for two people with varying levels of self-loathing and problems forming close relationships, maybe the contradiction was the fundamental draw. For normal people, love is supposed to feel sweet and happy and content. But for those of us with low self-esteem, or fucked up attachment styles, or childhood trauma, we experience love differently because we look for it in the wrong places. It feels more like taking a hit of opium while walking on a tightrope. 
dangerous, but sublime. We know the fall is inevitable, but the high carries us for a while. And we always want the person who wounded us to be the one that heals us. Of course, it can never work that way, but that's what we want. For love to be, as they say in the movies, like a sickness and its cure together. No one knows what Frank and Ava were thinking during their wedding, but I think it's likely that some of these questions about love and fidelity may have crossed their minds. Maybe that's why, at the airport, they were running, running, running just as fast as they could. Maybe they didn't want to think about the answers. Or maybe they were just trying to avoid the press. In their frenetic rush to get to the airport, Ava had forgotten her luggage. All she had with her was a purse. Her lovely honeymoon trousseau would go unused, at least for the wedding night. They spent the night in Miami in a secluded hotel, the Green Heron, in the Sunny Isles district north of town. Even there, a lone photographer managed to snap a photo of them as they walked down an empty beach the next afternoon. Their backs are to the camera. Frank's pants are rolled up, and Ava's wearing his jacket over a heavy skirt. They're holding hands, their heads tilted slightly down. Ava's hair is lifted on the wind. Ava thought of it as a sad little image, but I find it kind of charming. It captures a rare moment of peace between the lovers. On the second morning there, Frank had opened the curtains to a flashbulb going off in his face. From Miami, they moved on to Havana, Cuba. I don't know what possessed Frank to make this choice, as this was famously the site of his nebulous collusion with the mob. It only amplified the press attention. If they had gone basically anywhere else in the world, there likely would have been less attention from the Fourth Estate. As for their time in Havana, as ever, accounts differ. In Ava's memoir, they had a miraculous few days without fighting, just good times. On one of their last nights, Ava says she, quote, climbed up on one of the hotel's high archways, convincing Frank I was going to throw myself off. But I was just being mischievous, swinging along on rum and coke with no intention of ending at all. I was having far too much fun. However, in a subsequent interview, Ava would remember it differently. In this interview, she says she and Frank had a fight about what she couldn't remember. She did remember, quote, standing up, pissed drunk on the balcony of the hotel, on the edge. Standing there, balancing, Frank was afraid to go near me. He thought I was going to jump. End quote. Given their history, the latter possibility seems more likely, but we'll never know. What's striking to me is that this behavior kind of mirrors what Frank had done a couple times. Using the threat of suicide, because he was convinced it was the only way to keep Ava with him. Maybe Ava was employing the same tactic, or maybe she was angry at him and pretending she was going to jump was her way of forcing him into contrition. In any case, moments of peace and quiet like the one on the beach would be far and few between. Once the honeymoon was over, Frank and Ava relocated from New York to Palm Springs. They would never establish a permanent home as a married couple, but they tried first in Frank's house, which he called Twin Palms. 
CBS had agreed to let him move production of his TV show to Los Angeles, but it was still floundering and everyone knew it. He had no bookings for nightclub shows, and all he could get from the film industry was a two-picture deal at Universal. People in the industry had nicknamed him Mr. Gardner. On Christmas Day 1951, his movie Double Dynamite opened in theaters. Co-starring Jane Russell and Groucho Marx, it had been sitting in the can for three years. But RKO was in dire financial straits, so they released it. Double Dynamite was a dud, and it didn't make any money. In the spring of 1952, Ava was cast in The Snows of Kilimanjaro, a loan out to Fox. This was the second time Ava would star in an adaptation of an Ernest Hemingway story, the first being 1946's The Killers. Her character, Cynthia Green, isn't in the original story. The screenwriter Casey Robinson basically steals characters and plot points magpie-style from multiple Hemingway stories and novels. Cynthia is mostly based off the character Lady Brett in The Sun Also Rises. She's an uninhibited and glamorous woman, a nude model posing for aspiring expressionists. Gregory Peck's Harry, the main character, meets her in Paris, and they fall in love. Harry writes a novel about her. Select passages of said novel include, You're everything, I thought. Everything. On wheels. One feels a pang of secondhand embarrassment on Ernest Hemingway's behalf that his fine story is being turned into this cheeseball nonsense. Even so, Ava liked the role of Cynthia, who also travels to Africa and helps fight in the Spanish Civil War. She said it was probably the first part I understood and felt comfortable with, the first role I truly wanted to play. But Frank made it difficult for her to get the part. In fact, at first, he refused to let her do the movie at all. Everyone who writes a biography becomes somewhat biased toward the person they're writing about. Frank's biographers paint Ava as a high-maintenance diva whose volcanic sexual power turns Frank into a crazily subservient man. This is true, at least some of the time. Multiple people observe this dynamic throughout the romance. But once they married, Frank also felt more entitled to make traditional demands on his now wife, and he didn't want her far away from him. Especially because that March, he was scheduled to return to the Paramount Theater in New York, and he wanted Ava there to support him. He also remembered what had happened in Spain with that greaseball bullfighter. The Snows of Kilimanjaro was scheduled to shoot on location in Kenya, Egypt, and the French Riviera. This was because in the early 1950s, Hollywood studios were desperately competing with the new medium of television, which had caused a box office decline from the huge grosses of the 1940s. And what was something TV shows didn't have? Epic international scenery shot on location. There were also tax advantages to shooting overseas and often lower production costs. But Frank was adamant. Ava told Fox she could only give them 10 days exactly 10 days, to shoot all of her scenes. The studio rearranged its schedule to accommodate her request, and in fact, the plans to shoot on location were scrapped in favor of shooting the whole thing on the back lot in Los Angeles. However, this foreshadows an important development in Ava's life and career. After the snows of Kilimanjaro, 
More and more of Ava's movies were going to be shot on location outside the United States. The Snows of Kilimanjaro is free to watch on many streaming services, and you can also find it kicking around on YouTube. Ava's performance in it is very good, even though the movie itself feels somewhat stilted in its rhythms. She had great chemistry with Gregory Peck, with whom she'd also starred before in The Great Sinner. She and Peck were friends. No onset affairs here. And Peck was impressed with her growth since their last project. While filming a scene together where Harry rescues Cynthia on a Spanish battlefield, Gregory Peck tore a ligament in his leg and they fell behind in shooting. Director Henry King asked her if she could stay on another day to do the final shots. Ava started crying, but she agreed. Whatever diva behavior she exhibited in her relationships, she had the MGM professionalism shared by stars like Clark Gable. Show up on time, know your lines, be prepared. Ava was the breadwinner in the marriage at this point, and Nancy had taken everything from Frank. He'd sent the bill for his and Ava's honeymoon, chartered aircraft included, to Ava's financial advisor, a tidbit the press gleefully shared. So she was paying for everything, and Frank was an expensive person to maintain. So Ava needed to be a professional and get the movie done, in order to finance their lifestyle. She was scared to call Frank and tell him the news, as her crying would indicate. When she did, he started ranting and raving at her on the phone. She shouted back, and then hung up on him. This whole story shows a major problem in their dynamic. Frank was used to being catered to, and used to having a wife whose career was being his wife. But in the end, Nancy's subservience to him meant that he fell out of love with her, and stopped respecting her. The fact that Ava could not be dominated or bossed around was one of the crucial elements of his attraction to her. But then he also wanted to dominate her and boss her around. When people talk about Ava as a manipulative, man-eating, nihilistic broad who only cared about her own pleasure and her own celebrity, I picture her crying on the set of The Snows of Kilimanjaro. She had negotiated everything with the studio to get her part done in ten days, which must have been demanding. It also meant forfeiting the possibility to shoot in exotic locations like Kenya, Egypt, and France. There's no question to me that she engaged in all these negotiations out of devotion to her man. She was, in a rare move, letting him boss her around. But when her professional obligations kept her from returning to him on schedule, he was explosively angry. I've been researching this relationship in an informal but dedicated way for nearly five years. I've listened to Frank's music, watched Ava's movies, read everything I could about both of them. And so in a way, I've spent a lot of time, if you will, with these two people. And I'm often in a dialectical mindset about the relationship, a contradictory dynamic where I empathize with both of them, sometimes deeply and unreasonably at the same time. But in this instance, I really don't have any patience for Frank. Ava did everything she could to keep him happy. An entire production crew had done everything to keep him happy. And his reaction was that of a petulant and ungrateful child. I would have hung up on him too.
We've been tracking Sinatra's career decline since roughly 1948, and now it's 1952. It may be hard to imagine things getting worse for him, but they did, when his talent agency, MCA, dropped him. MCA took out full-page ads in the trade publications, Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, to announce that they were letting him go. Then Universal decided not to go through with the second film in Frank's two-picture deal after Meet Danny Wilson flopped. Frank's engagement at the Paramount Theater was a disaster. The entire upper balcony was empty. One day, the singer Johnny Ray came on a publicist-arranged visit to meet Sinatra while he was in between shows. You probably know Johnny Ray from his hit song Cry, which by April of 1952 had sold a million copies. He was the new teen heartthrob, and he represented a burgeoning new direction in popular music. Johnny Ray was a lanky, eccentric guy, somewhat androgynous and very melodramatic in his performance style. His rise in the early 50s was a harbinger of things to come, including acts such as Elvis Presley. Sinatra was not a fan. To him, Johnny Ray represented Mitch Miller's penchant for gimmicks and novelty numbers and freak shows. But he was gracious to Ray backstage at the Paramount, making small talk with him and his entourage, introducing Ray to Ava, who was also there. Then Frank was called out of the room to deal with something or other, and Ava went over to Johnny Ray and sat in his lap. She stroked his curly hair and whispered in his ear seductively. When Frank returned, he grabbed Ava by the arm and pulled her out of the room. Yes, things were getting worse for Frank. And then on April 1st, CBS finally pulled the plug on his TV show. Where do you go when you're a major star whom nobody wants to see? Hawaii, of course. Frank was now reduced to booking himself, and the Kauai County Fair was the best he could get. He convinced David to come with him and make a vacation out of it. She said yes, even though she was supposed to report to Mexico to shoot some dumb trifle called Sombrero. Ava was a contract star. Even as powerful as she was, she had virtually no control over what movie she was in. She didn't want to be in this movie. It wasn't based on the short stories of Ernest Hemingway. Ava believed she deserved better material. So she joined her husband in Hawaii, and in Honolulu she was notified via telegram from Eddie Mannix that she was suspended without pay. Ava hoped the suspension wouldn't last long. On the day of Frank's performance, it was raining on Kauai. This was how far he had fallen, from packing 5,000 people into the Paramount a decade earlier and causing tens of thousands more to riot in the streets, to performing in a tent in a county fair to a hundred tourists in moomoos and Hawaiian shirts. Try to imagine a superstar of his caliber in today's music world reduced to the same fate. Imagine if this happened to someone like Drake or Adele or Beyonce. It's unthinkable. And yet it seemed inevitable in 1952 that this was where Frank would end up. Frank's new pianist, Bill Miller, was with him before they went on stage. The rain was leaking through the canvas, dripping on Frank's tuxedo. A couple of girls in grass skirts came over, 
festooning Frank with leaves and kissing his cheeks. He smiled at them, but there were tears in his eyes. He turned to Bill Miller. Should they do it? Miller nodded yes. The crowd went wild when they saw Frank emerging. To a local reporter, Frank would say, Tonight marks the first night on the way back. I can feel it in every bone. To Ava, he said, I'm washed up. I ought to just face it. The public is finished with me. No one with your talent has ever washed up, Ava replied. This is just a bad time. Then she told him to rub her ass for good luck. And he did. While Ava was on suspension, Frank continued booking whatever gigs he could get around the country. Ava complained to Modern Screen Magazine that she wanted to see her husband, but, quote, where is he? Playing the Chaparie in Chicago. Then he's hitting St. Louis. It's rough. End quote. She went to his opening at the Coconut Grove back in L.A. in May. They got in one of their repetitive fights because he was giving the patented Sinatra eye to another girl in the audience. In the midst of this argument, allegedly, Frank hit Ava so hard that she fell down, and then she started bleeding. She had suffered a miscarriage. This story comes to us from Ava's friend Roddy McDowell, who directed her in 1969's Tam Lin. I haven't been able to find another account of this event in order to corroborate the story. However, there is one piece of evidence that adds credence. On May 25, 1952, the Los Angeles Examiner reported that Ava Gardner had a medical emergency, the exact nature of which is not stated, and that she was rushed to Cedars of Lebanon Hospital. She was attended to by Dr. Leon Crone, who was a gynecologist. This date lines up with when Frank was performing at the Coconut Grove. Now, it may have been that Frank did not hit her and the miscarriage just happened on its own. But like I said, I only know of one account of what happened. Roddy McDowell would have no good reason for making up such a story, but one wonders if Ava wanted him to share that information in the first place. After all, no matter the particulars of the situation, it would have been a traumatizing event for her. I'm sharing it with you now because I don't want to sweep the unpleasant parts of the story under the rug just to make it more appealing. Despite telling multiple reporters for many years that she wanted children, Ava never deliberately tried to get pregnant. Regardless of her ambivalence about having children, this event must have been traumatizing and painful for her. A week later... When a reporter asked her if she would join Frank at his engagement in Chicago, Ava said, I don't know. It will depend on how I feel. Ava was a notoriously mercurial person, known to impulsively change her mind about anything at any moment. But such a cold response would also make sense if she had recently experienced the events Roddy McDowell described. Finally, Ava's agent went in to negotiate with MGM, and her suspension was ended with all the withheld salary restored. 
She would now command between ninety dollars to $130,000 a picture, under the condition that she make herself available immediately and without protest for whatever film the studio wanted her to do next. Ava demanded that MGM formally include an agreement in her contract to produce a film that would star her and Frank together. They were thinking of making a movie version of the Broadway musical St. Louis Woman. MGM included the clause in her contract, but it wasn't binding. Still, it made Frank happy, so Ava signed up again for another seven years. Once the suspension had lifted, MGM immediately retaliated by sending her to make a bad movie. Movie studios did this all the time to their prodigal sons and daughters. It had happened to Frank, too. But it was stupid business thinking on their part. Ava was their most valuable box office property. Now should have been the time for MGM to develop projects well-suited to Ava's talents and strengths to capitalize on their investment and on her moment in the zeitgeist. Instead, they stuck her in another mediocre cowboy movie, Ride Vaquero. Ava was reunited with Robert Taylor, with whom she'd had an affair on the set of the movie The Bribe. She was also reunited with her showboat co-star Howard Keel. Part of the film was shot on location in Kanab, Utah, which Howard Keel called the asshole of creation. Beautiful territory, but we were out there for about, oh Christ, a month, and there was nothing there and nothing to do there. Ava whiled away her time by drinking with the stuntmen. She despised her director, John Farrow, who was cruel to the horses and cruel to the sex workers he had flown in from Los Angeles. As a side note, John Farrow is the father of Mia Farrow, who, as you probably know, would become Frank's third wife 14 years later, when he was on top of the entertainment world once again and wearing a toupee. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It was a combustible summer, this summer of 1952. This kind of thing happened all the time. Ava went out one night with Lana Turner and another actress friend, to an Italian restaurant. In the middle of dinner, Frank had stomped in, drunk as hell. He came right up to Ava's table and resumed an argument that they had had earlier about God knows what. Ava frostily ignored him and continued to talk to her friends as if he wasn't there. Frank burst out, Lesbians! Lesbians! All of you! Lesbians! 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 The entire restaurant fell silent and looked on at the spectacle as Frank turned around and left, screaming lesbians all the way out. In September, Frank had a show at Bill Miller's Riviera in Fort Lee. Ava was with him. One night he sang a song, not directed at Ava, but to his old flame Marilyn Maxwell, who was in the audience. Ava initiated the ritual she'd done a hundred times before and got up and left. But she went further. Back at the Hampshire house, she packed her things, put her wedding ring in an envelope with an angry note addressed to her husband, and left for Los Angeles. Frank insisted to the LA Times that it was just a mild rift. In fact, they didn't speak for several weeks. By October 7th, Earl Wilson reported that less than a year after their wedding, Frank Sinatra and Ava are desperately trying to avert a crack-up. In a detail so resonant it feels fake, 
Frank actually lost Ava's wedding ring and had to have a duplicate made. When he came back to California in mid-October, she accepted it. But a few days after they reconciled, they had one of their biggest ever fights to date. On October 18th, they'd gone out to dinner, got drunk, started arguing, and returned to their rented house in the Pacific Palisades. Ava went to take a bath, calm down. But Frank still had some things to say, so he burst in on her. Ava yelled at him to get out. I would not be surprised if she splashed some soapy water at him, too. Okay, baby, I'll get out, Frank said. You can find me in Palm Springs. I'll be there fucking Lana Turner. And he did indeed peel out of the driveway in his car and drive to Palm Springs. At first, Ava was too angry to absorb what he'd said, but as she thought about it, it started to seem dangerously possible. Frank had offered Lana use of the house, Twin Palms, in Palm Springs. Lana and Ava were good friends, but Lana's priority had always been herself. Frank and Lana had had a thing all those years ago, and with Frank, anything could happen. And so, an hour later, Ava picked up her sister, Bappy, and they sped east into the desert. When they got there, to Twin Palms, Lana was indeed there, with her business manager, Ben Cole, not Frank. Lana's latest boyfriend, Fernando Lamas, had beaten her, and she was hiding out while the bruises and contusions on her face were healing. Lana and Ben were about to go swimming and Ava explained a version of the story to them. Lana offered to leave, but Ava said she didn't have to. And the four of them all went swimming and then went to the kitchen to make some food. Then Frank charged in from the back door. Needless to say, he was surprised to find this foursome sitting down at the table together having a nice time. Ah, Frank, said Ava after a beat. I thought you were going to be down here fucking Lana. I wouldn't touch that broad if you paid me, he said, apparently forgetting what he had shouted to Ava in her bathroom hours before. The comment was deeply hurtful to Lana, especially at that moment in time when she had bruises on her face. She started to cry. Frank didn't care. He could only think about his own pain. I bet you broads have really been cutting me up, said Frank. You! Get in the bedroom. I want to talk to you. Ava went with him into the bedroom. They started arguing and throwing furniture. At this point, Lana and Ben Cole decided to leave. Frank came out of the bedroom and ordered them and Bappy and Ava all to get out of his house. Ava said she would, but she was taking everything that belonged to her. According to Ava's friend Esther Williams... Ava shepherded Lana and Ben outside and was saying goodbye to her friend when Frank came out and threw water from a douche bag onto them. Then Ava went ballistic. She went back into the house and started tearing paintings off the walls, flinging records and books everywhere. Sinatra was right behind her, picking up whatever she'd thrown and tossing it out the open front door into the yard. A neighbor called the police. When the squad cars arrived, Frank was trying to remove Ava bodily from the house, and she was clinging to the doorway with both hands. Even after the police chief had separated them, they kept cursing at each other and throwing things. 
Lana and Ben had left to find other accommodation, but they returned to get Lana's clothes and to see what had happened. They told Ava and Bappy to come stay with them for the night. The cops didn't file any charges against the couple, but word got out anyway. There was a story about it in the Los Angeles Times under the headline, NOT CONFIRMED, in all caps. The Palm Springs police chief, the guy who'd pulled Frank and Ava apart from each other, refused to divulge any details, but other people on the force seemed willing to talk for the right price. Today, it has transmuted into several different versions. In an FBI report on Sinatra, he had allegedly walked in on Ava and Lana having a threesome with another man. Given the reason why Lana was hiding out in the desert in the first place, this seems extremely unlikely. But whatever happened that night, the battling Sinatras were back to a standoff. They wouldn't speak to or see each other for nearly two weeks. Then, just as abruptly, they made up. At a rally for Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic nominee for president in the upcoming election. Ava had promised to introduce her husband at the Palladium. Ever the professional, she showed up, even though she and Frank weren't speaking. She stood in the wings, and, as she recalls, As always happened when I saw Frank, my heart melted, and the battle was forgotten. There was a script she was supposed to read from, but she threw it away and walked up to the microphone to introduce Frank as a wonderful man and a great guy. I think Frank was as surprised at the introduction as I was, she remarked. He came out into the spotlight and put his arm around her shoulder. He said a few words about Adlai Stevenson, but the crowd was really cheering for them, for this charismatic, crazily volatile couple. Frank kissed Ava and she stepped off stage and the band played the birth of the blues. From the wings, Ava watched him, besotted all over again. When he was in good voice, he was like a god. A small gang of reporters clustered around her asking questions, but she ignored them, gazing at Frank with hard eyes. Some idiot from Chicago piped up, Hey Ava, Sinatra's career is over, he can't sing anymore. What do you see in this guy? He's just a 119-pound has-been. And she said, in the most ladylike and unruffled way, Well, I'll tell you, 19 pounds is cock. Women in 1952 didn't talk like that. Certainly not famous ones in front of reporters. But these reporters, after a beat of stunned silence, just busted up laughing. Ava smiled at them and returned her attention to her man. On October 30th, the Los Angeles Daily News reported, The reconciliation of Frankie Sinatra and Ava Gardner is on the up-and-up. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. And just in time, too, for Ava's next film, which, as it happened, was filming in Kenya. With nothing going on in his own career, Frank would be tagging along. But first, they were going to North Carolina. Ava had spent time with his family. Now it was time for him to come meet her family. At the airport, a reporter asked Ava, What will Frank do while you're making the movie? She said, Oh, he'll do his act in some African nightclubs. A wiseacre in the press pack quipped, Who's opening for him? Tarzan? Who indeed? 
thanks for listening to Lovers Forever. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Amber Nelson. The logo was designed by Abby Scheel. The music is from Epidemic Sound. We're distributed by Buzzsprout. If you like Lovers Forever, please follow, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. You can find us online at Lovers Forever Podcast on Instagram.